Good morning. For those of you that might be new here, never been here before, it's, it's great to have you with us this morning. My name is Dave, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks. And if you are here for the first time, you picked a great time to join us, great time to kind of dive in, because we are in a really important series for our local church. It's a series on the book of Acts. The series is titled Unconquered, From One Life to All Nations, and uh, we have been in it since this past September because we, as a local church, are seeking to not simply be a family, but a, a family on a mission, and the mission, of course, is the gospel. So I'm glad you could join us this morning for that. If you want to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, <clears throat> the assignment for this morning is Acts 20 through 21, verse 16, but I'm going to confine our study this morning to what I think is the heart of this section, which will pick us up in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, through the end of that chapter. So the title of this morning's message is, What Really Matters? And before we read, let me just take a second and give you a little bit of context of what's going on in this section of Scripture. So the date is about A.D. 57. The ship carrying Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of Ephesus. And, uh, <clears throat> and he's pulled in there, and from there he, he calls these friends that he has from Ephesus. It's 30 miles away, he's close enough, he figures, hey, I want to see my friends, the Ephesian elders at the church that he was once in, a local church he once served at. And so he calls them to come and be with him. And once they're gathered together, Paul makes, offers what is one of the most significant speeches in all of Scripture. In fact, it's the only message to a Christian audience in the entire book of Acts. And so let's read that together, beginning in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus... And called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, 
For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down And he prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that as we approach this passage, that you would grant the grace from your, from your spirit, the, the illumination that's necessary for us to really be able to understand what it is that we are encountering here in this passage. And we pray also that you would give us the grace to know how to apply this passage, that when we leave, we might simply not leave better informed but armed with some way that you want to engage us within our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the French philosopher Voltaire, a man who was the intellectual force behind the Enlightenment in the 1700s, when he lay dying on his deathbed, it was reported that he said, quote, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. O Christ. O Jesus Christ. Now you hear that and you think, you know, what what was happening there? What was it that he was thinking? What was it that he was seeing? What was going on in those final moments of his life? You know, someone once said, death clears the mind. In other words, it sharpens our perspective on, on how we lived. It kind of clears away the mental clutter. It sifts through our life with a strainer, the strainer of eternity, so that we can see things maybe, maybe just a little clearer. And maybe, maybe that's what was going on with Voltaire. We don't know. But maybe it was that death was clearing his mind. In Acts chapter 20, Paul thinks he's going to die. 
In fact, in verse 22, he begins by saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit. I don't know what's going to happen, except the Spirit of God has said to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But then he goes on to say in verse 25, but I know this, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So he's with a group of people that he loves, but he's not going to see them again. And I like to think that his mind is clear. And because his mind is clear, he's got some important things he wants to convey to these people that are part of his old church. He's got some important things to say to these friends that have come to visit him from Ephesus. And this is one of those awkward times for Paul where to say what he needs to say, he has to use his own life as an example and an illustration of the, of the truth that he wants to con- communicate. That's a practice that's typically, by the way, arrogant when you and I are do, it, do it, but it's appropriate when, you know, an apostle who has actually seen the risen Christ does it. So, what's on his mind? Well, Paul wants to, Paul wants to communicate goodbye to the people that he loved. Because this is a guy for whom ministry was not simply just a profession, but this was a whole life commitment. This is, something, this is a guy who was never just punching the clock. Paul was never just executing a job description. He was relating and linked to people that he cared about, and he knew he wouldn't see them again, so he wanted to say goodbye. But there's a second reason, and I think a far more intriguing one as well. And that is that Paul wants to make sure that they understand what really matters in life, what really matters in ministry. If Paul was never going to see them again, then he wants to arm them with what it really means to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, to live a life that might be defined as having gospel success. And I want to suggest to you that though he's addressing elders in this message, in this speech that he's giving, his words, nevertheless, have relevance for all of us, whether you're here as a mother or a student or an artist or a worker or you're retired. It doesn't matter. It touches all of us in some way. So it's here in Acts chapter 20 that we see Paul in this unusual phase of his life where he's giving what he believes will be a final charge to his friends. And if I can summarize for you his entire message in just a sentence, what I think he seems to say in this is that gospel success is seen in how I lived, how I loved, and what I valued. Those three things. Gospel success is seen in how I lived, how I loved, and what I valued. And so what we want to do together is just march through the passage and and see how he goes about saying that and unpack that a little bit. So we're talking about what really matters because Paul was talking about what really matters. And he's, he's aimed at gospel success, and he wants, he wants his listeners to understand what made him successful according to the gospel. <clears throat> and it begins with how he lived. So in verse 18, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. And he goes on to talk about how he was humble, how he had tears, how there were trials. So he's first pointing out this this way of life, this pattern of life that he had while he lived among them. He's talking a little bit about his character, his example. And by the way, when Paul does this, this isn't simply 
you know, an obligatory point on example or character. But what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to help them understand how the gospel connected to his way of life. What was the bridge between the two? How did the gospel affect the way that he lived and spoke and admonished and taught while he was among them? But it begins with him saying, hey, let me, you know, if if we're going to talk for the last time here, let me take you back to something that's really important because in order for to convey to you what gospel success is all about, let me do something that's awkward but nevertheless necessary. I want to talk to you about how I lived among you. That's where he starts, how I lived among you. He says, I served the Lord with humility, with tears, with trials. In verse 20, he says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Verse 34, he says, you know that these hands ministered to my necessity and even those that were with me. And in verse 35, he kind of summarizes the whole thing up by saying, in all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we can help the weak. We can remember what Jesus said to us when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The point that I'm making is that when Paul goes to define gospel success, he starts with the fruit of character. He's not start with his education. And remember, this is a guy that had impressive credentials when it came to education. He sat under Gamaliel. That's, that's basically the highest degree you could get back in those days. But he's not talking about that. He's not dropping names. He's not reaching into his contacts to pull out impressive names that he could... He could talk to those guys about it. He's not making a passing reference to having seen the Lord, gone to the third heaven, seeing the resurrected Christ. He's not mentioning his ministry size, his income, his profits, his square feet. He's not mentioning the number of folks that his ministry employs or anything like that. I read a quote this past week from a guy who wrote a book, a guy named Darius Salter, where he said, quote, at no point in his life did Paul point to statistical results of his labor to authenticate his success. Well, if he's not doing that, what is he doing? Well, what he does is he invites the Ephesian elders to look back and to reflect upon what they observed in his life, what they heard from Paul, how he lived among them. Wow. (laughs) You know, I don't know if that that affects you the same way it affects me. In fact, there's no pastor with any sense of conscience that can really read this and walk away unscathed. Because I know immediately that there are gaps between the things that I profess and the way that I live. I know there are times where I will preach on, on being selfless and I will go home and be selfish. There are times I've called men to purity but I've lingered when something pops up unexpectedly on the computer. I think the question for all of us is not, are we living in perfection? Obviously, we're not. I'm not. You're not. But it's whether we have this how I lived among you as a a factor, as a category in our life for what the gospel is supposed to produce within us. How I lived among you is a factor in gospel success. We can't be perfect, but we follow one who was. Nevertheless, we're trying to live a life that's consistent with the gospel that has been proclaimed, that there is a gospel work that is supposed to work out among us. And this touches us in all areas of life. 
for those of you that are here and your parents. You know, too often kids drift because not they don't believe not it's not because they don't believe in God, it's because they've never seen the reality of God's work, of the gospel work within the home. They see this inconsistency and they don't know what to do with that. And because they feel like there's not substance or legitimacy or or anything authenticating the reality of the gospel, they look elsewhere. Too often employees roll their eyes at their boss, not because he or she believes in God, but because they live a life that's inconsistent with what they say they profess. What Paul's saying is, as much as possible, I tried to close the gap between what I profess and how I live. And for Paul, gospel success in his life or in his ministry began not with what he said, but with who he was among them. And I think it's like that because the gospel has never been simply a set of facts that we believe, a set of historical data that we profess to other people. But the gospel has always been about a person, Jesus Christ, who embodied and applied the truth. So the truth has never been separated in application in the gospel. I guess another way to say that is to say that to follow Jesus is to follow one who didn't just proclaim the gospel, but he embodied the gospel. He didn't just state facts about the gospel, but he was the gospel and he applied the gospel. So he didn't come to earth simply advising us on how to get to God. He's not an advisor. He wasn't a paid counselor. No disrespect to paid counselors or advisors, but they get paid not to apply the truth, but they get paid to profess the truth, to advise on the truth. But when God wants to ransom his people, when God wants to transform us from the effects of sin, he he doesn't simply declare it from heaven and leave us wondering how to proceed. He doesn't advise us on the path forward. No. What he does is he comes and he clothes himself with flesh. He incarnates as a man, and he perfectly embodies the truth that he is calling all of us to live. And so Paul endeavored to live it. And that's why he's able to say, you know how I lived among you. Not because he was perfect, but because he followed another who was perfect, because he knew how Jesus Christ lived. And so he's also able to say it because he understood something about Christianity. And this is something that it's really in my heart that we get today from this passage. He understood that applied truth is at the heart of Christianity. Not just truth. Not just a body of fact, it's applied truth that's at the heart of Christianity. It's it's being not simply a hearer, but a doer. See, we think God at times measures us by, you know, the amount of passages we know or the podcasts we listen to or maybe the books we read, the things that we stuff our brain with. And I think there's a sense where God says, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're learning. I'm glad you're being a hearer. That's a good start. But I'm more impressed with whether you're doing it and how well you're doing it and whether doing it is actually part of your Christianity, part of your understanding of how God is at work in our life. See, we can leave meetings at times evaluating the preaching, not realizing that God leaves meetings evaluating us. You know, we say, yeah, I don't think Dave was, I don't think Dave was really on today. 
And God says, you know what, I'll keep working on Dave, but let's talk about whether you're on right now as you leave the room. Meaning the quality of the delivery, you know, may be good or bad, but that doesn't change the nature of our call as Christians once we get it. We're called to apply. Each of us. Every one of us. And that gets really practical. You know, for the fathers here, how I lived among them. That, that means how our, our kids see us at home. And I'm not just talking about, you know, your perfect, wonderful example. No, you're a sinner. You're bringing that into your home. So how often do, do your kids hear the reality that you're a sinner? Sinner, sin, that's our job description. And so how often do your kids hear you say, oh, yeah, I blew it there, and hear your humble confession and acknowledgement of weakness or, or, or wrongdoing? See, Paul says, I was among you serving the Lord with all humility. In other words, they encountered Paul's humility, not the perfection of his example. We don't want to go off believing that what this is about is just working harder, doing better. No, it's just about living an authentic life in front of other people in all of our strengths, and in all of our weaknesses as well. Paul says, how I lived among you with all humility. Let me ask you a question. Would your spouse this morning say that you're humble, that he or she encounters from you a consistent humility within the home? How I lived among you. See, that's how Paul defined gospel success. And by the way, just to make sure that we're not straying in our mind, this has nothing to do with earning God's approval. In fact, the good news this morning is that because Jesus lived that perfect life and died that substitutionary death and and walked in perfection and has gone before us, he then transferred or imputed that perfect righteousness to us so that when God looks at us each and every day, he no longer sees us in our sins and in our lusts and in our lies, but he sees the perfect works of Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ just dripping off of us, and that elicits his approval and his pleasure, and that's why God's always moving towards us. It's not because you have a perfect example at home. It's because you have a perfect Savior that's gone before you. So this is about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel because of what Christ has done for us. And Paul says that's what gospel success was before you Ephesian elders. It's how I lived among you. So Paul says gospel success starts with how I lived. But then he takes it a step further and also says it's about how I loved as well. Now, you You look at Paul and you look at his description of his life in Acts chapter 20 and you see that almost inherent to Paul's definition of success seemed to be how he cared for people, how he loved people. This is not a guy that was just earning a paycheck. So, you know, in in verse 17, he lands in Miletus. What's the first thing he does? He calls for these mates. He calls his friends and his brothers to, to come and join him. It's only 30 miles which back then was a two- or three-day journey by foot. But come to me. I'm close enough. Let's be together. And then he begins talking to them about how he lived with them, how he served them with tears, how he didn't shrink back from sharing the truth. Verse 31, how for three years he didn't cease night or day to admonish every one of them with tears. Again, again with the tears. 
And then, of course, there's just that final farewell, which is, is a story in and of itself where there's weeping and embracing and kissing and deep affection. The, the love of these men is it's just striking. They don't want to say goodbye. They don't want to part. Paul loved them. They loved him. And that was part of how Paul understood and defined success. Let me tell you something about let me tell you something about me. Actually, this is something about you as well. We all, each and every one of us, we all have a vision of success that each and every day we are moving towards in some way. There's, some, there, there's things out there that we believe in deeply that we think if we could just obtain or arrive at or achieve, our lives would just have more meaning. It's those areas where you say, my life would have more meaning if only whatever you fill in the blank there with. You know, maybe for some of us it's, if only I was financially stable, then my life would have more meaning. Or if only I could be healed of this affliction, then my life would have more meaning. Or if only I could forget the past and what's happened. Or if only I could prosper at work, then my life would have more meaning. But I think the question that we all have to wrestle with is whether our definition of success parallels Paul's at all. Does our definition of success, for instance, include a people that we love? And I'm not talking about family, by the way, when I say that, because when it's blood relatives, we endure because they're a fixture in our life. They're family, right? So we say, oh, well, that's just my stupid brother, or that's just my crazy uncle. I have to love them. I've got to be around them. I'm committed to them. We're together for the rest of my life. But that's not who Paul's talking about here. This was Paul's church. This was, this was the people he was talking about. This was the people he was joined to. When he says, I served you, I wept with you, I was honest with you, I was generous to you, he's talking about his local church in Ephesus. And what we're seeing is that as Paul describes that experience of having been with them and among them, there's a kind of gospel-informed vision of success. In other words, it was the gospel that informed Paul's vision of what local church life should look like. In fact, the gospel defined the reasons for his involvement in the local church. So it's the gospel that led him to want to be among the people and serve. It's the gospel that led him to want to be among the people and humble himself, to be among the people with tears. It wasn't Hollywood. You know, when we have a Hollywood approach to the church, that's where the church becomes a place to gather admirers, where the church becomes a place to build a platform where our gifts can be expressed. It wasn't Walmart either. When we have a Walmart approach to the church, that's where the church becomes a place where we go as a consumer to have all of our needs met. It offers me deals. It doesn't require anything from me. Or we can be tempted maybe to approach the church like, like massage envy, you know, where the primary goal is that I'm made comfortable, I'm made relaxed with the fragrance of my choice. See, the gospel said to Paul, and it says to us as well, it's not enough to live among them, you must love them. 
It's not enough to live among them. You must love them. So, where does he go to summarize a successful life? Well, Paul walks through all the ways he loved the people in his local church. Now, the question I have for you this morning is, do you have some local church that you love in the way Paul loved his church? I'm not asking about what church you attend, by the way. I'm not even asking if you're a member of the church. What I'm asking is, is there some church of whom you can say, verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time I was with you. From the first day I set foot with you, serve the Lord with all humility. I serve the Lord with tears. I serve with trials. We had trials together. We served together in that. Is there some group that you can point to and you can say, that's my people. That's who I do that with. You know, I've been pastoring since, well, in, in, my, in my early years of ministry, it would have been like the, the mid-80s. That, that would have been two, 20 years after the 60s. And so the, the children of the 60s were, you know, were, were coming of age. And, and being a pastor back then involved helping people, to, helping Christians to join churches because there was this There was this independent spirit where people just didn't want to attach. They didn't want to be involved with anything that even implied or smacked of authority or organization. But you fast forward 30 years, and now it's a more layered problem. It's a more textured problem where where pastors have to help people who join churches become a people who love the people in the church. So it's not an independent spirit. It's an ambivalent one. It's, yeah, this is my church, but what, is that, what does that mean? What is that, why is that really relevant? That makes no claim upon me. That has no, no, no merit or no significance for me. And I've been thinking about this. I've been pondering this shift. And I'm realizing that, that for a lot of Christians, not talking about unbelievers, for Christians, the church is increasingly becoming a service I attend rather than the very reason why it was created by God, which is a place where I grow. It's a service that I attend rather than a place that I grow. God has created the local church because he loves us and he's committed to our growth. And so he gives us a community and it's in this community that we're called to grow. The point of the community is that we might grow together. John Piper once said something. He said, he said sanctification, that's just a big word by the way to say how Christians grow. Sanctification is a community project. Sanctification is, our change is, requires the community. That means a couple things. It means first that it takes a church to help me grow. It takes a lot of people to help me grow. And I think that's probably true of all of us. But it also means this. It means My growth comes through the church. You know, words like humility have no meaning unless we see them in some context being applied. Service, all, it's, those are just words that we use. That's just, that's just a vocabulary that we're conversant with because we're Christians and we can sit in a small group and talk about these words. But they mean nothing 
until we know how to apply them, until we see them applied. Apart from that, they're just clinical. They're just abstract. God has created the local church to help us to apply truth. It's God's place for us to apply truth. So the church is like a like a, a laboratory. It's like a classroom. It, it, it's actually a number of things all kind of rolled into one. It's a, it's a training place. It's, a, it's an arena where we apply. It's, you know, you can't just reduce it down to one thing. It's not just a place to learn. It's not just a place to experiment or to train. It's most importantly a place where people, where Christians unite together as sinners to apply what they learn, to apply truth. It's a God-ordained place for Christians to apply truth. And so if you, you can begin to see then, if a person is not actively involved in a local church, oh, they may have a high estimation about where they are spiritually, but it's more likely that they're not going anywhere. It's more likely that they're not growing, even though it's becoming increasingly common for people to spiritualize their lack of involvement in the local church as if they're moving on with God in significant ways. And if, if these ideas kind of incite you at all, or, or, or you're sensing God saying, yeah, I need something like that. My, my goal, our goal as a pastoral team is not to get you to be a member of this local church. We'd love for you to be a member of this local church. Our first and primary goal is to get you to be a member of some local church. Some gospel-preaching local church deserves your commitment, deserves your trust. And if this isn't it for you, please get to wherever it is as quickly as possible, because that's what's going to help you grow. It will force you. It will create a context where you can apply truth. If you're interested in how to do that here, we have a class that we run. I think the next, it's called the Engage class. The next one's in April. I think it's April 12th. So you can check that out online on, at, the, at the website. Now, I know we hear things like this, and we bring our experiences. We bring, you know, we bring our baggage. We all, we all have it. And we, a lot of us have baggage with the church. In fact, you hear a message like this, or you read Paul's words, and you think, wait, you know, if I, go, if I move towards the church, I'm afraid the church is just going to disappoint me. Well, of course it's going to disappoint you. When do sinners ever unite and not disappoint one another? Does that happen in marriage? Where does that happen where sinners actually come together, united in some kind of relationship, and, and pe- people don't get disappointed? It, that will inevitably happen. I mean, check out Paul in verse, what is it, verse 29. He says... I love this. He says, I know that after I leave, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Look at verse 30. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. He says, all that's going to happen. Even people in the church that are not well-intended whatsoever are going to rise up. They're going to rip you off. They're going to twist things. But Paul's prescription here is is not to abandon the church because these bad things are happening, even in the church. His counsel is just be alert. Be alert. Someone came who was looking at Four Oaks recently and came to me and said, you know, church leaders have always disappointed, disappointed me. I said to them, oh, you should come to Four Oaks. We'll disappoint you too. And you'll see our imperfections and you'll see our weaknesses and you may even see a sin. 
I think I can tell you with a high degree of certainty that I hope you'll find that we're honest about it and that we'll accept responsibility for it. But it'll be here too. Because a local church is not meant to protect us from disappointment. A local church shows us how God uses disappointment because it forces us to live in reality before one another. I brought a quote by Bonhoeffer with me. He said, God does not love some ideal person, but rather human beings just as we are. He doesn't love some ideal world, but rather the real world, the fallen world. That's the world that God loves. Fallen people, that's who God loves. Fallen people, is that who we love? See, my point is that negotiating our imperfections is how we learn to love one another. It's how we define gospel success. So Paul says gospel success is seen in how I lived, how I loved. And then there's this final category that it's seen by what I valued, how I lived, how I loved, what I valued. So for Paul, gospel success wasn't simply a class that he took or, or even the group that he joined, but it was ultimately seen in what he prized above all. So he says to them, beginning in verse 22, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except I know the Spirit of God has told me that imprisonment and afflictions await me, which that always kills me. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm Paul, I'm going to try to, like, negotiate a deal with God where I say, Lord, either tell me nothing about my future or give me the whole picture. But if you're going to let me in on some little detail about my future, does it really need to be that imprisonment and afflictions await me? I mean, this is like a zombie movie where we just know a bit about the future and we know it's not going to be good. Imprisonment and afflictions await me. But the reason he moved forward was because of verse 24. He said, but I don't account my life of any value. I don't account my life as precious to myself. Here's what I value. I want to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, the point is, there were things in Paul's life that he valued more than his freedom. There were things that he valued more than his safety. Here's where it gets, gets radical. There are things that Paul valued even more than his friendships and his relationships and his, his family. Now, th- think about this with me for a second. Here you, I mean, obviously, we've already stated, and I hope we've established that inherent to Paul's definition of success was relationships. Okay, this, this is not just a professional where he's about the paycheck but he's about the people. So he sends for the elders. He lived among them. He served them with tears. He supported his companions. He gives a whole list. We didn't read this, but in chapter 20, verse 4, a whole list of people that he traveled with by name because he loved these guys. These were his mates. This, this was his small group. But, and this is really important, his vision of success wasn't defined by just remaining with that same group of people for the rest of his life remaining in the same fellowship group for the rest of his life, or having Sunday lunch 
with the family or with the same group of people, that that's how I define success. Again, keep this in mind. Paul loved people, but he realized that some goals are so glorious that you must sacrifice the things you love to obtain them. That the gospel is so glorious that it calls us at times to sacrifice the things we love to obtain the goal. And so there is this thing called the mission. And it is a mission that we are all on. And the mission calls us to sacrifice at times our relationships that the gospel might move forward. I mean, again, just think about this passage. Think about what's being stated through it. Who, who can deny the, the, the drama of that final farewell where Paul leaves those he loves? It's breaking his heart. But here's the thing. He leaves them anyway. He's even told them that after he leaves, savage wolves will come in from the outside. Men from among them will rise up and seek to twist things around. But here's the thing. He leaves them anyway. You see the point I'm making here? There will be no mission if the church values protection over mission. Forget it. I mean, we might as well rip Acts right out of our Bible. Acts would be unnecessary. Let me take that a step far, for, uh, further. There will be no mission if the church values relationship over mission. Paul would have no missionary journeys whatsoever. Acts 20 would never even take in place. He would have just remained in Ephesus. Yeah, we love one another. We do. In fact, yeah, here at Four, Four Oaks, we're about relationships. We have our fellowship groups, and we want to build fellowship groups where people have the courage to drop beneath the surface, to deal with the reality of the fallen world, the reality of our fallenness, to help one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. We want to have a church where families are strong, where relationships are valued, but relationships, if they're not if they're not held in tension with the mission, can morph to restrain the mission because they become what the church is, is all about. You know, in a, in, in a former life, I had the privilege of, of standing on a stage on multiple occasions, sending out multiple church planting teams to different cities over many years. And I remember looking many times at the man leading that church planting team and the people on that team that were being sent out from our local church thinking, how can we possibly survive this? The relational separation, the unique role they played, the unique gifts that they had, and yet God always blew us away. Keep in mind, this local church, Four Oaks, would not exist if 20, 25 years ago if a guy named John Kaiser, a man who I've never met, I feel indebted to. I hope you do too. I've never met him though. If he wasn't willing to leave wherever he was and come to Tallahassee to plant this local church, do you see the point that I'm making? Paul valued the gospel even over those relationships. 
And if we're going to be serious about mission, if we're going to be serious about our one life, if we're going to be serious about starting campuses and planting churches, we're going to have to do the same. Paul said, I do not account my life of any value, but I want to preach the gospel to wherever I'm supposed to preach it. And I guess the question we all have to wrestle with is, do we value the gospel in the same way? Do we value it like that? Wouldn't you have loved to be present in verse 36? When after Paul finishes this speech, he says, he knelt down and he, he prayed with them all. <clears throat> and there was, there was weeping. There were tears. Because really for Paul, everything that could be said had been said. And so they clasp hands and they, they pray together. And then it says, evidently, waves of emotion began to sweep over them because they began to realize in a fresh way that the gospel was taking this man that they loved away. And the full implications finally hit home for them. They would never see his face again. And I want you to know something. You know, when I read that last line where it says, and they accompanied him to the ship. I imagine that was a long way down to the water. I doubt there was much laughing or clowning around. I imagine grief owned that moment. But Paul climbed aboard that ship knowing something very important, and that is that the people that he served had seen something in him. The people that he had served saw how he lived, how he loved, and what he valued. And that though he was going away, though he was going to die, his example of gospel success would live on in their hearts. Let's pray.